Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. We are back today with another episode of House Call from UBS Asset Management, a monthly update on the House View equity portfolios, including Dividend Ruler, QGARP, Opportunistic Equity Income, Mid-Cap, and Large-Cap Core, all very popular offerings with our UBS client base. Uh, joining me today, glad to welcome back Jeremy Zirin, the head of the U.S. private client marketing team, as well as Dominique Shager, UBS Asset Management's new lead equity investment specialist. So Dominique, Jeremy, welcome to you both. Thank you for spending some time with our listeners and our clients. Uh, Dominique, I know you will be running today's conversation with Jeremy, so I'll pass it over to you. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm excited to be taking on this new role on the Active Equities team. From our first UBS on air, we have quite a lot to discuss given the state of the markets. It's been a wild ride so far in 2022. So, Jeremy, let's just jump into it. In prior calls, you have laid out a fairly constructive view of the U.S. equity markets. How are you thinking about the markets now, given the litany of the recent developments that have waited on the market so far this year? Yeah, thanks, Dom, and welcome, you know, to the team and to the call. So, yeah, right. So, going into the year, you're correct. I, I largely described that we were, you know, structurally bullish, but that 22 was likely to be a bit of a tricky year. You know, if you look back at 2021, you know, the S&P 500 rose 28%, and that was largely driven by the you know, triumvirate of strong rebound in corporate profits, very easy monetary policy and the continuation of fiscal stimulus. And as we head in, headed into the year this year, what I was concerned about was that while earnings still look healthy, they were set to decelerate from the, the 45% surge we saw in earnings last year. And markets often get a little bit nervous when they see a deceleration just because they don't know how far and how steep the deceleration will be. But more importantly, the other two pillars of last year's gains, the easy monetary policy and the fiscal stimulus, we're set to reverse. And in fact, you know, today we're likely to hear right after this call that the Fed is about to embark on their first interest rate hike in the current tightening cycle. And so now, you know, the war in Ukraine only complicates matters further and adds another downside risk into the mix. You know, in addition, we also need to recognize that, you know, the global economy is still dealing with the effects of COVID. So while you know, thankfully, trends in the U.S. have significantly improved over the past few weeks. We now have new outbreaks in China that are driving lockdowns given their you know, zero-tolerance policy. And that's clearly more you know, worrisome specifically for, for supply chains. So I think you know, to get back to an uptrend in equity markets, you know, first and foremost, we need to see some resolution to the conflict in Russia and Ukraine. You know, otherwise, energy prices, as well as some key metals and agricultural prices, are likely to stay elevated, weigh on global growth, keep inflation elevated, and continue to be a, a drag both on you know market sentiment as well as on business sentiment. So putting it all together, Don, there's a there's a saying in stocks, or there's a saying that stocks climb the wall of worry. Now, right now, the problem is that the war in Europe has made the wall a bit higher, and a lot of investors are having some trouble seeing the better times on the other side of it. But even with these added risks, I think for investors that can look past the, the very here and now, uh, in our base case over the next several months, we should ultimately move past most of these risks. I think that the U.S. economy stays resilient and avoids going into recession and markets recover from this correction. 
But in the near term, there's just a lot of uncertainty. And, and frankly, the range of outcomes has certainly gotten wider since the beginning of the year, largely due to the war in Ukraine. So you mentioned the war in Europe, the new COVID outbreaks in China, and the set of three market risks. Can you maybe unpack each of those three risks one by one and discuss your views and their potential impact on the economy and the markets? Sure. Uh, I mean, when you look at the, the Russian-Ukraine conflict, I mean, first and foremost, what's going on in the region is just a tremendous humanitarian tragedy. And so our thoughts and prayers go out to the Ukrainian people. But if you're looking at it from purely its economic implications, there are a couple different avenues that you need to assess. And first, it's a direct exposure to Russia and Ukraine from, that the U.S. economy has. And fortunately, that's very small. Right? Russia itself is not very significant for the U.S. Uh, Russia makes up less than 1% of U.S. exports and imports, and similarly, you know, less than 1% of S&P 500 company sales. You know, the main transmission mechanism for the conflict to really hurt the U.S. economy is through higher energy prices, and specifically you know, retail gasoline prices, which have already risen over the past three weeks as the conflict has escalated. And so the longer the conflict goes on, the longer we'll be paying higher prices at the pump. And that's the bad news. I would say that the silver lining here, though, is that the U.S. economy as a whole is far better suited to handle higher energy costs than at any point in the last 50 years. You know, given the shale boom of the past decade, the U.S. is actually now a net energy exporter, so our domestic energy sector benefits quite a bit from higher energy prices. And even for the U.S. consumer, you know, gas as a percentage of either income or spending has steadily declined for decades, and consumers pay you know, just 2.5% of overall spending on energy. You compare that to 3.5% a decade ago and as high as 6% in the early 1980s. And so while energy costs will shave a few tenths off of U.S. GDP most likely, if they remain elevated for an extended period of time, I think higher gas prices alone are very unlikely to push the U.S. economy into recession. Uh, you know, in fact, we still think the U.S. economy can grow by above trend levels or over 2% this year, um, largely because of the, the tailwinds of the fading COVID cases opening up some of the more depressed areas of the economy. I would say, you know, that, that's so one of the risks, right? I'll, I'll try to go a little bit faster to talk about the other two risks. I mean, COVID, which I just mentioned, you know, there things are looking better, right? In the U.S., with daily new cases, uh, down 98% below the Omicron peak. Uh, Europe is a bit more mixed, with new cases down about 50% from the peak, but still running above 2021 levels. As I mentioned in my opening remarks, the real issue is China, which just imposed a, a seven-day lockdown on the city of Shenzhen, a city of 20 million people, you know, due to the uh, COVID outbreak there. And you know, keep in mind that China doesn't have a zero policy for COVID uh, because it just simply doesn't have the infrastructure, whether it's the testing, it just doesn't have effective vaccines, treatments, the hospital capacity. Uh, so it doesn't have any of those things to really deal with a large number uh, of cases. And so with, with a you know, significant amount of global manufacturing supply chains reliant on China, you know, this could delay the improvements that we are already starting to see in many global supply chains, and it does risk keeping inflationary levels high in the near term uh, until we start to see, you know, global supply chains start to heal more broadly. And then lastly, you know, thinking about the risk from, you know, the, the third risk that we identified with the dead, uh, 
we, we, you know, last year, the Fed chief policy very easy and really leaned to, towards, you know, one side of its mandate. Like, right, the Fed is a dual mandate of maximizing employment and price stability. Last year, they prioritized the growth side of the mandate and kept policy easy to maximize employment and ensure the sustainability of the economic recovery during COVID. And with inflation now running hotter than they hotter than they expected and for longer, I think this year they favor the inflation fighting side of the mandate. So, you know, the risk side that the Fed raises rates significantly over the next couple of years if inflation remains well above that two percent mandate. Well, I'm glad to hear your kind of glass half full positive view on on the future. I feel like sometimes with all the headlines it's hard for us to get past all the noise and focus on the fundamentals. So with that, do you see any positive fundamentals supporting the market right now? Yeah, so we talked about, you know, the risks of COVID, the risks of the Fed, the risk of the war in Ukraine. I mean, I do think we should not lose sight of the fact that there are still several positive fundamentals, frankly, Dom. I mean, one is that corporations are still fighting that final demand remains very strong. And much of the inflation problem that we're seeing is because there isn't you know, enough supply to meet the final demand from both consumer and businesses. And hopefully, if we do see COVID cases uh, you know, ease and, and subside, uh, we will see and we are a continuation of some of the supply chain improvements that were in place just a few weeks ago. I mean, if you look at sort of where I mentioned there's pent-up demand for services, particularly in the U.S., where COVID cases have fallen so much, you know, airlines are citing that there is tremendous pent-up demand for travel and, you know, bookings are improving significantly. You know, the, the U.S. also has some, you know, I would call, you know, uh, some uh, a cushion in terms of the U.S. consumer having over $2 trillion in excess savings. And so, you know, if part of the risk to the economic Outlook over the next six to twelve months with higher oil prices, you know, the excess savings from the consumer can help to to buffer uh, some of those added costs. I would also say that, you know, in terms of the Fed, I've often mentioned this, and I'll be a little repetitive here, but it's not the first rate hike that investors typically need to worry about, but it's the last one where interest rates are actually high and borrowing is costly. And so, if you look back over history, stocks typically do reasonably well. Uh, in the six to 12 month period after the first rate hike, because the first rate hike is happening in the context of a reasonably healthy backdrop for consumer and business spending. And then finally, you know, from a market's perspective, you know, bearish sentiment is high, which historically been a fairly reliable contrarian indicator. And so when we've seen pullbacks of 10% or more, and right now the market's about 10.5% off its high and uh, when we've seen historically those types of 10% corrections uh, that don't lead to a recession over the next 6 to 12 months, stocks have typically rebounded pretty strongly. And so if you look at other signals like an elevated VIX, low levels of individual investor bullishness, uh, these are all you know, typically at low reading or VIX is at a high reading. The fear index, the individual investor's bullishness is at a low reading. And these are typically, you know, contrarian indicators that lead to above-average market returns, implying that there's a reasonable amount of pessimism already embedded in share prices. Thank you for that. I think it's always helpful to hear kind of put everything into context. So moving on, um, maybe can you walk us through what are the house view equity portfolios and how are your portfolios currently positioned? Yeah, absolutely. So my team manages five portfolios that are exclusive for UBS Wealth Management clients. 
Uh, our QGov portfolio is our large cap growth portfolio. And we think that that portfolio offers the strongest combination of quality, earnings growth, and reasonable valuation within the context of growth companies. We have two income-focused strategies, one that focuses on companies with a long track record of strong, consistent, and durable dividend growth called dividend ruler. And then we also have a more value-oriented strategy that looks for higher quality income-producing stocks with low valuations where our team can identify specific intermediate-term catalysts that we think will unlock that undervaluation over time. And that one is called Opportunistic Equity Income, or OEI for short. Uh, additionally, we have a mid-cap portfolio that provides clients exposure to smaller size companies. And finally, our large-cap core portfolio is our lowest turnover portfolio, where our team tries to identify companies with the most durable competitive advantages, which allows us to have longer holding periods and less overall portfolio turnover. In terms of positioning, you know, the philosophy governing our portfolios is typically the biggest driver of stock selection. So for dividend ruler, for example, you know, we just find more consistent dividend growers in the industrial consumer staples and financial sectors than we do, like, for example, in the technology sector. Uh, but from a sector or factor perspective, when we think about applying a, a macro view or what's called a top-down overlay to our portfolios, we generally like value over growth, reopening plays over COVID winners. And given the increasing risks that we've been talking about on this call, we think that higher quality stocks are increasingly important and can add ballast to the portfolios during rocky markets. Thank you, Jeremy, for that. Dan, that's a wrap from us. Thank you again for having us on the show and back over to you. Well, Dominique Shager, Jeremy Zirin, thank you again for spending some time with our listeners and their clients today. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for another episode of House Call, a monthly update on the House View equity portfolios. We look forward to next month's segment and hope you will continue to tune in on a monthly basis. If you do have any questions or are looking for more information on the House View equity portfolios, please be sure to contact your UBS financial advisor. The information in this discussion has been prepared by and reflects the opinions and various investment views of the speaker. UBS Financial Services, Inc. has not independently verified such information and does not guarantee its accuracy or completeness. This information is being provided to you for your information purposes only and does not constitute a recommendation or an endorsement by UBS Financial Services, Inc. of the author, the securities, or views stated herein. Any specific security Securities discussed should not be considered a recommendation or solicitation to buy or sell any particular security. You should not assume that any investment in any of the securities was or will be profitable. UBS Financial Services, Inc. or its affiliates and its employees are not affiliated with any third-party speakers mentioned. UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, different in material ways. We are governed by different laws and separate arrangements 
clients, it is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.